0: Hey, Icon Josh here. So, I am here to finish out our series on John, and it is no small thing to say that we are going to end on a very, very high note. And so, I hope that you're ready. And so, because of what we have to go through today, we're, we're going to need the Spirit of God to help us, to help me. I feel uniquely my sense of neediness right now. And so, uh, go, go ahead and pray with me, and we'll get, we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the promise of your word, God, that it never goes, uh, it's never ineffective, God. It it never uh, doesn't accomplish the goal for which you set it out. And so, God, I pray that today as we finish this series in John and as we talk about the divinity of your son, Jesus Christ, and how that relates to you, God, there's so much that can confuse us and so much that can Uh, really distract us from what is important here for us to get. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would help me and would help my friends here at ICON to understand more of who you are, God. To, yes, be humbled by our inability to fully grasp you, God, and to really, we can't handle you with our minds fully, but God, you, you come to us and you reveal yourself to us in certain ways. And, and God, we want to approach you in the way that you reveal yourself to us. And so that's what we want to do today, God. Father, would you help us by your spirit to understand more of who you are and to love you more because of it, God? Father, I pray that you would, as we explore your, your son and your relationship to him and what that means for us, that you would give us a sense of wonder. God, that we would see that the faith that we've come into, the, the family, the kingdom, what, what is in front of us, God, that you've brought us into is wondrous and glorious, worthy of devoting our entire lives to, God. And so would you, would you do that in us? Would you unite your power with my weak words and cause fruit in our lives as a consequence, God? We love you, Father, and we entrust this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I did something fun for the first time about a month ago. Uh, I for the first time went up the Space Needle. So I've been living in Seattle for about 10 months and before that I had visited a few times and uh, I I always wanted to go up the Space Needle and it was really really fun. Actually that is a complete lie. It was absolutely terrible. (laughs) Uh, You see a little thing to know about me is I am terrified of heights Uh, and really only specific heights. I'm not afraid when I get on an airplane, uh, I could do a hike on the side of a cliff and feel fine. I'm a, I'm a rock climber, so there are certain hikes that don't bother me, but really the one that always gets me that I feel most uncomfortable with is being in a building. For some reason, that one just feels a little bit more unsure to me, you know, like in an airplane, I, I kind of get the the physics behind how it's working and so I can trust it a little bit more, but I don't understand how we can build these tall buildings with all this weight bearing down on it. It's just, it, it totally doesn't make sense to me. I'm, I'm not an engineer, so it makes sense that it doesn't make sense. But So, so basically, uh, my, my older brother and one of my friends, Austin, were coming to visit and they just bothered me the whole weekend of, listen, man, you've got to do this. You're a Seattleite. Like you've got to actually go up the space needle. We want to go do it. So finally, they they wear me down and I'm like, OK, let's just do it. Let's just get it over with. So I'm, I'm going into the elevator and I realized that the elevators have glass that looks out, which just feels that just feels dumb. And so there's my brother took a picture of me. And, uh, you know, my nose is basically on the elevator door just not even wanting to see anything outside of that class. I don't want to see how high we're going. I don't want to feel it. I, I just want to zero in on this little elevator door and not be afraid of anything. So we get up there and we're walking around and I'm holding on to every, type, every rail I can as tight as possible as if that's going to be what saves me should the building collapse. It's dumb, but uh, it, it helps me, I guess. And we're walking around and we go to the little piece where there's the the see-through floor of glass and it's rotating. And the whole time I'm just thinking the pride of human beings, man, to think that we're, we're okay here and everyone else is just having a good time. But I'm just, I'm shaking in my boots and I'm up there for maybe 15, 20 minutes. And then I'm like, I'm just going to go back down. Like I saw the thing. I get it. I understand that this is really pretty. I understand that this is an experience that I probably... definitely had to do now that I'm a, I call Seattle home and I I get the value of it. I get the, you know, the view is really beautiful. I see why people want to do this, but I just want to go back down where I feel safe. And what we're going to talk about today, I think is a, a lot like that. We feel like that towards it. You see the, the kind of title of today's sermon is he is the one who is God that Jesus is God. And friends, there's not a way for us to talk about the divinity of Jesus in a faithful and reliable way without talking about, wait for it, the Trinity. (laughs) The Trinity, The, the, the doctrine of the Christian faith that feels most out of our reach to understand. And I think a lot of us view the doctrine of the Trinity like I did with the space needle. That we, that we understand that, yeah, we're Christians and we have, to, we have to believe this. Otherwise, we are no longer Christians, which is true. This is a, this is a close-handed doctrine. And we kind of see the value of it. We, we can see why it kind of matters. We can see why other people are into it. But when we get to that height of theology, we feel totally uncomfortable. We feel uncomfortable and we, we understand everyone else is having a good time, but I feel out of my depth. I can't I can't do this. So I just want to go back down to real life. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do, pastor. Don't don't bother with all this high theology of the Trinity and this 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 like deep-headedness of we we got to understand this and it just feels way out of our depth. And friends, to think that way is a mistake. To think, to, to view the doctrine of the Trinity with just like a, a, a mental assent to it, that yes, I understand that that's something I have to acknowledge as true, otherwise I'm not a Christian, but I don't really want to explore it. It makes me too uncomfortable. I can't get my head around it. That's a mistake. And it's, it's a mistake because the doctrine of the Trinity is the start and the substance of the entire Christian life. Everything that makes Christianity unique, everything that we have to offer to the world, every assurance that we have as Christians that God will be faithful to his promises and that we've been saved in Jesus Christ, all of these things that we are comfortable with are all tied to the doctrine of the Trinity in a way that cannot be separated, otherwise it falls apart. Every other doctrine, every other belief of the Christian faith stands or falls on this singular doctrine of the Christian faith. The the sentence of our salvation makes sense because underneath it is a Trinitarian grammar. Or the, the, the picture of our salvation is beautiful and wonderful because in the end it is painted with Trinitarian brushstrokes. The shape of our salvation is cohesive because it has Trinitarian contours. We cannot get away from this reality. But even more, for our own personal life as Christians, we are invigorated when we understand that God is Trinity. There is at our disposal here. God has, as He's revealed Himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is here for us riches for our Christian life, when we understand the God who has worked our salvation and the God to whom we now relate, we're better equipped to live the Christian life with some stability and some energy. And so, is, is the doctrine of the Trinity too, too deep for us to fully understand? Yes, totally, w- without a doubt. But even with this acknowledgement of our limitations, our limited capacity to understand God, it's still understandable. It's not nonsense. And when we understand it, when we understand what we can, it is deeply practical. And we're going to see that today. It is deeply practical. There's, there's this quote by one of my favorite guys named Charles Spurgeon. I have a Little bobblehead of him on my desk. And ever since I first read the first thing by him, I've been, I've just been totally absorbed in what he has to say. And there's this quote that I read from him around the first time that I became a Christian. And it has, if I can say it this way, haunted me ever since with what is offered to us in God. The riches of what it means to know God. Listen, listen to what he has to say. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, Finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that I am but of yesterday and I know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. We already said that, right? He goes on. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And while humbling and expanding, this is the important part, this subject is eminently consoling. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. In the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balm for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in its immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest." refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. And so my my deep prayers, I've been preparing this week and as I've been putting all this together, I've been thinking through this, my deepest hope for you Is that, yes, you would understand, uh, you know, one piece of the Trinity that we're going to talk about in relation to the divinity of Jesus today, but that you would feel in your soul, that in your bones, you would know the comfort that is available to you because of you knowing God more, knowing who he is, how he relates to you, that it would speak peace to the winds of trial that it would help you to begin to drown your sorrows in the immensity of our great God. And so, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at this text in John 10, and we're going to go through and kind of set up what's going on in the story, and then we're going to spend our entire time unpacking really one single verse, which is verse 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And as we'll see, Jesus in this text clues us into a massively important way in which he and the Father are one. There, there's more here, but I already have too much of a task to, to, to talk about one thing about the Trinity, about one thing about Jesus' divinity. So give me, give me some grace. So we're going to look at that. We're going to take time to kind of explore the big idea, and then we're going to talk about why it actually matters for our real life. Okay, let's get started. John 10 My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So immediately right out of the gate, we see that Jesus is on trial here. So the the Pharisees, you know, this is actually the time of of Hanukkah, and Jesus is just kind of strolling through the temple. And then all of a sudden, the Pharisees and Sadducees just kind of surround him. And they're not asking a genuine question here, because actually the word for having gathered around him or having surrounded him, that, that Greek word there is actually, the only other two times that it's used in the Bible is to uh, show an, an army circling around an enemy's camp. And so they, they, have, they have really sinister intent here, that they, they want to catch Jesus in something in order to condemn him. And how does Jesus respond? Verses 25 through 27, he basically gives a quick recap of what he's already been teaching in the last two sections. Just kind of a quick recapitulation of what he's already said. He hits on their inability to see the works that he's been doing all along, referencing the blindness that he talked about and that he indicted them with. And then he goes back into this language of sheep and shepherd, that they follow him and they know his voice. And so Jesus, in response to their surrounding him, what he does is he takes the last two things that he's been talking about and compresses them really shortly. And then he's going to get into what he was actually talking about right before those two sections, which is in John 8, where he begins to talk about his own divinity. He uses the language of of I am in John 8. And so as the Pharisees and Sadducees are coming at him in order to catch him in a lie, Jesus basically compresses what he's already told them. You are blind. I've been doing works all along. You can't see them. And you can't see them because you're not my sheep. And basically picks up again about, about what he was talking about before, which is his own divinity. And how does he talk about his divinity here? How is it different than how he talks about it in John 8? He says this, I and the Father are one. Jesus claims equality with God and identifies himself as unified with God the Father in a way that that no other human being, no other person is. And so Jesus leans in here. He, He knows what the Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to do. And he does not shy away. He does not miss the moment in order to lean in and say that he and the Father are one. But how are they one? What does he mean by that? Well, in this text, I think what we see is Jesus gives us, he clues us into a major piece of how him and God the Father are one. And that's where we're going to spend our time talking about for the rest of this. First we see in this text that Jesus and the Father are one in essence. So, so when Jesus steps up to the moment and says, I am God, I and I and the Father are one, He begins to kind of uh, kind of uh, unpack that they are one in essence. And he even does that before. When, when Jesus is referencing the sheep that He's going to protect, he, he equates his power, to hold them and protect his sheep on par with that of the power of the father. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus talking about himself. And then he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So already he's equated his power, that he possesses something in himself that is identical to God the Father, that matches the power of God the Father. But not only that, if you look further down in in verses 37 through 38, he says this, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. What in the world is that about? So Jesus says here that he holds the same power that the Father has, and somehow he and the Father are, are in one another. There's a, there's a union, a, a unity together that Jesus uses in order to reinforce his divinity. That he is united with the Father. Listen, all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been showing and doing the works that only God could do. That only God could do. And we've seen that in our series so far when they talk about, who, you know, since creation, who's opened the eyes of a blind man? Surely this, is, this one is from God. He's been doing these works again and again and again, and every time he is questioned about these works, he always points back to his unique relationship with God the Father. And that's important for us to see, because I I think a lot of us, when, when we think about the divinity of Jesus, we kind of think of it as a thing that he shares with God the Father or with God the Holy Spirit. We think it's just kind of something that he possesses, but that would be to miss the point, because how do they share that same essence? How do they share that same substance? It happens in the context of their relationship with one another. You know, it's, it's not like Dr. Seuss of like thing one and thing two. God the Father is thing one God, and then God the Son is thing one two, Holy Spirit thing one three God. No, the, the shared divinity, the equality within, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is there because it is in the context of relationship. It's not just a substance. It's not just a thing. It is a relationship. It is a relationship. The divinity of Jesus is always expounded in the Bible with an explicit connection to how he relates to God the Father. And this is uniquely shown in the Gospel of John, actually. Jesus Jesus uses the phrase, my Father, when talking about God, 44 times in the gospel of John. The only other gospel that even that is closest to that, to using that type of language in that term, is the gospel of Matthew, which uses it 17. And so all throughout the gospel of John, Jesus has been trying to show, my father, my father, my father, I am, re- I am in relationship with him. And here we see that that relationship consists of a shared divinity. John has all along been trying to show us that Jesus and the Father share the same essence. And we've talked about this in when, Je- when Justin was setting up the whole series and he talked about at the end of John when John basically says, hey, the reason- Jesus did a whole lot more than this that would fill all the books and all the scrolls in the world, but I've written what I've written in order that you might know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That everything in the Gospel of John stands or falls on whether Jesus is God. Everything we've talked about, that Jesus is good shepherd, that Jesus is the one who heals, that Jesus is the one with authority, that Jesus is the one with mercy, none of it really matters unless Jesus is the Son of God, unless he is equal with God the Father. That he has a relationship with the Father, in which his divinity is secured, in which his divinity is is found. And so what I want to talk about here is, what, what is this relationship like? If the divinity of Jesus is uniquely tied to his relationship with the Father, that it cannot be divorced from that reality, it's not just a thing that he has, it's a relationship that he has, that he's in with the Father. What does that relationship look like? The relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been an eternal dance of full, unrestrained love, knowing one another fully in the unity of the Trinity. We see this all throughout the New Testament. That that as this reality of the Trinity is being unfolded, unfolded for us further in the New Testament, we see that... That that God is not just uh, in in some dull way Father Son and Holy Spirit, but there is a richness of love and of knowledge and of uh, of life together, of joy in one another, all throughout of it, all throughout the New Testament. This relationship in God is one of reciprocal, uncoerced, eternal love. Eternal love. Where else do we see this? We, I mean, we even see this most clearly even in, in John still, in, in John 17, when Jesus is doing his high priestly prayer. He's, he's talking to God the Father with this language that, that he's letting us kind of view in on, on, how the Father sees him and how he sees the Father, how they relate to one another, that they share glory. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's John 17, 5. Or John, John 17, 20 through 26. You get it. You get a really clear picture of this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And, you, and you, you can keep going on all throughout that and Jesus just keeps using this language of you are in me, I am in you, that, that you know me, I know you. We are in a relationship of love. A relationship of love. That's the big idea here that I really want you to, to sense in this text in, in John 10. That Jesus is not just trying to to answer the questions of the Pharisees. He's not just like, he's not just cluing in on, oh, here's what they're, here's how I can back them into a corner again. Jesus is willingly knowing that at at his own risk, because they actually pick up some stones to try to stone him. Jesus reveals who who he is, the most important thing about him as the son of God. Being in relationship with the father that he has always been with God. We saw that in John 1, 1, in the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus has always been in this relationship of deep, uncoerced, reciprocal love. And that is this, this, this central piece of the Trinity. There, there's so much more that we could talk about, but we only have like 40 minutes But that sentence alone, that God, who has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a relationship of love. It is not dry. It is not dull. It is not boring. It is flowing forth with life, that the life in God is unlike any life outside of Him, full of richness and love. But why in the world does this matter for you? Again, like we we can think of it like the Space needle. Yeah, that feels really high and I can see the value. I can see why other people would enjoy that, but just get me back down to real life and just tell me what to do. Why why does this truth of the Trinity, this, this one central piece of the Trinity of relationship, how does this affect you? Because God has eternally existed, in the context of relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that means that God does nothing out of neediness. God does nothing out of neediness. God did not create because He was lonely. God did not redeem you because He needed you, because He saw something in you that He just had to have. That He was lonely. No! God has eternally existed in this relationship within Himself full of satisfied, reciprocal love, and so you don't have a codependent God. Do you understand the value of that? Do you understand the value in how how that changes, how you think about yourself and how you approach God, that He's not here to take from you. He's here to give. That because God is not lonely and never has been, he doesn't have to depend on you to give him something that he doesn't already have. Listen, listen to how Fred Sanders, who wrote the book, The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything. It's a fantastic book. really recommend it. Listen to how he says this. The doctrine of the Trinity expels unworthy ideas about the perfection of God's life. It is unworthy to think that God without us is lonely or bored. God is not looking for something to do in the happy land of the Trinity. God did not create the world in order to fill the drafty mansion of heaven with the pitter-patter of little feet. God is not pining away for companionship in a lonesome heaven. Good theological reflection, taking its lead from the Bible, would always lead us to reject the idea of divine loneliness or boredom. But as soon as you entertain the truth of the doctrine of the Trinity, the unworthiness of the idea of a lonely or bored God becomes patently obvious. The triune God is one, but not solitary. Nothing that God does in creation or redemption is done because God lacked employment and occupation. The incarnation of the Son of God was not undertaken as an excellent adventure to provide a diversion from the dullness of being the eternal Son. All these ideas are unworthy of God. Every other God, every other idol is there to take from you. It wants something from you. you see, even in the Old Testament, you see that language again and again and again, that Isaiah talks about the, the stupidity of idols, that you build this thing and you bow down to it and you give these things over to it. Every other idol takes from you. Relationship with idols will cost you something. It will cost you something. It always will take from you. But being in relationship with the God of the Bible is supremely about receiving. If this truth is real, that God has always been satisfied in himself, in a relationship of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then that means that he's not coming towards you in order to take something from you, but he's coming towards you out of an overflow. He wants to spill out onto us that same love within himself, that same joy, that same life, that same richness and depth. Does following Jesus mean you have to leave things behind? Totally, absolutely. But you're leaving those things behind in order that you might more readily receive. You're leaving the things behind that keep you from receiving the real life that God has to offer us. Relation. Having a God like this, who is not needy, means that when He comes toward us, He comes to give. And we come to receive. If God is Trinity, that means He needs nothing from us. He doesn't need you. And he doesn't see in you anything that he doesn't already have. And that provides a security in the relationship. <laughs> that means that I'd, I don't have to come to satisfy some need in God. And so that on my bad days, when I don't provide that for him, he's going to be upset with me. That same old thinking of the, the ancient gods of we, we got to do something to please them again so that they can give us something. We, we got to give them something first and then we receive back. No. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, I am full in myself in the relationship of the Trinity, full of satisfied love, and yet I move toward you to give, for you to receive. You are freed up to simply receive from Him. And, and, and this, this reality, not only does it help us to come to God in order to receive from Him, but it also it, it, it informs the way that we uh, move in the world with love and justice. How so? This doctrine, they don't, we don't really see it this way, but this doctrine of the Trinity, if understood rightly, is extremely appealing, should be extremely appealing to a secular world. We live in a culture that that at its highest value is love, right? And right next to it, justice. That we want to be loving in the world and we want to see justice reign. But that can't really happen without the doctrine of the Trinity. How so? You see, if God was just one person, if he was monopersonal, And wasn't a relationship within himself already before creation, then that means that when he created, he created out of a he 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 first exercised power in order to love something. He wasn't, he wasn't full of love already, but first had to actually exercise power, and then he could love something, which would make the, the 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 great virtue of the universe power, domination. That's how it started, that, he was, that this God was lonely, and so he exercised power first, this, this thing that was already in him. He wasn't loving then. He had to first exercise power, and then he could love. But with this God, with a God who has eternally existed full of love, then that means that when he created, it wasn't about power, or it wasn't about neediness. It was an overflow of love. With a a God who has eternally existed, full of satisfied love, for him to create actually makes the central tenant of the universe love, rather than power. It's not that, that God is powerful, but he identifies himself as centrally love. And so we can acknowledge with our secular neighbors that, yes, the center of the universe, the central tenet and principle of the universe is indeed love. But let me tell you, let me give you some foundation behind why that's true. Because there is a God who, out of an overflow of his own love, created everything. And then not only that, but, but this great God, <laughs> this majestic and mysterious God, he has made, we talk about this all the time at Icon, He has made us in the image of God. That our efforts at at, at justice, our passion and our energy to see justice fill the world is always motivated by the fact that every human being is made in the image of God. But a lot of times that kind of becomes this this thin and, and meaningless trope that, yeah, we're made in the image of God, but what does that really mean? What, why does that mean I have value? What, well, it means you have value because of this valuable God, this God who's worthy of praise, this God who is, who is out of our depth, who is majestic and glorious and mysterious. If, if we're made in the image of that God, then it's so much easier to see why you have value because you're made in his image. And so justice is energized and invigorated by being in, made in the image of this glorious triune God. And so, so that's, that's, the, that's the piece of the Trinity that really moves our, our real life. It affects us in real life. I, I hope that you sense the majesty of this God. That when you feel out of your depth, yeah, we've explored some, some heights of theology here that are really hard to get around. I hope you feel out of your depth. <laughs> I hope you feel a little bit uncomfortable, but yet intrigued that you have the fear of the Lord, that you're, that you're both lashed with terror at your own limitedness, but you're also leashed with a sense of longing to see this great God, that this God is worthy. And so what's your response to all this? We, we've talked about how this kind of leads you in, how, how it affects your real life. But today, right now, what's your response to this? A few things. Devote your life to this God. Like like Spurgeon shared with us in the beginning, that there is nothing more glorious and there is nothing that will fill our souls and expand our minds and console our troubled hearts more than the study, the relational study of this great God, to know him, not just with our minds, but to know him and be with him. That's what you were made for. You, you weren't made to do little diddly things in life. You weren't made to just go skiing on the weekends and then go on the next hike. If that's the center of what makes our jo- our life joyful, you are missing the point. You're not made for little diddly things. And listen, I'm all about hikes. I'm all of like I've been trying even since I moved up here I've been trying to find like what's my thing that I'm going to do. But that is not the center of life. If your life consists of nothing more than the gaps between which hike you go do or which, you know, go snowboarding or go over here or go, you know, you're cooking this food. Like we're just obsessed with these tiny things in in comparison with this great God. Spend your life wanting to know him, wanting to be near to him. If he is this majestic, if he is this worthy, then what else would be better than to know him deeply, to be in relationship with him on a day by day basis? And listen, you can do that. You, you can be in relationship with him, you can know this great God. You're, you're smart enough. Don't believe that lie that you're not smart enough to read the Bible. You're smart enough to know all kinds of different sports statistics. You're smart enough to memorize all kinds of things. You're smart enough to follow the news really closely, religiously, you might even say. You're smart enough to know God. And in the end, it doesn't matter because you have the Spirit of God to help you. God isn't waiting for you to figure him, figure him out. He's come towards you. He's revealed himself in the Bible. And so we come toward him to know him. Devote your life to this God. Want nothing more. Consider life meaningless apart from him. Consider life thin. Consider it thin in, if life has to be lived outside of knowledge of this great God, of relationship with this great God. Because it is. It's thin. It's not what we were made for. It's vapid. Listen, they say that nature abhors a vacuum. And I think that's true about our souls too. That there, there is definitely a vacuum in our soul. And we're going to be going around to all these different things to fill it. And so you've got to be intentional about laying some of those things aside, pushing them outside to the fringes of your life in order that the center thing might be the center thing. If you don't do that intentionally to know this great God, nature does have a vacuum and it will be filled with all these little diddly things. You'll be satisfied with the small little appetizers of the world, totally missing out on the feast that God longs for you to have in relationship with him. So devote your life to Him. And then second, and this is, this is perfectly timed, because we're doing baptisms next week on Easter Sunday while we partner with DOXA. And as Christians, we are baptized into the name of the Trinity, into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the, of the Holy Spirit. And so maybe for you, you've never been baptized. You might have questions about what that means and why it's important that we would love to answer. But I would just compel you and encourage you to be baptized into the name of this great God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So next week, if you've not been baptized, if you are a Christian and you've not been baptized, take that next step. It is critically important, even for our spiritual life, our our spiritual vigor So email us if you want to do that. If you want to be baptized, we would love to counsel you and help you to see what the importance of it is. And then in the end, your response is to rest in this great God. To see that your salvation is secure, that yes, Jesus' grasp is secure. You are safe precisely because of the relationship with the Trinity. That because the Father planned your salvation, the Son went and purchased it, and the Spirit went and applied it to you, giving you the gift of faith and is now leading you home into the happy land of the Trinity. That secures your salvation, provides it richness, and it provides us assurance that if God gave up His beloved Son, this one in he, who He's been in relationship with for eternity of love, if he gave him up on the cross for you, that means he's not going to give you up now. He's already bankrupted heaven in order to have you. And so you can feel safe. When you see the the richness of love that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it gives you a picture of how much he actually loves you. That the Father would send the Son. That Jesus would willingly go. He would leave the praises of angels and the face of his dear Father in order to go and save you. That assures our soul. And so today, rest. Lean back into this mysterious doctrine of the Trinity and know that there you are most safe. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for your son who has revealed to us who you are and who he is, God. There's there's so much there for us to swim in and to revel in and to wonder at. But I pray specifically, God, that your spirit would help me and help my friends here to see just the sheer value of your Relationship of love, God. To see the wonder of it, the majesty of it. To see that this, this, this doctrine of who you are as Trinity is not just some mental thing that we got to give some space to because we're Christians, but it's actually an invitation into the richness of life that you intend for us, God. Father, help us to feel that today. Help us to be humbled in it, yes but also deeply drawn towards you because of who you are, God. Help us in our neediness, God. You're not needy, but we surely are. And we need your spirit. We need your Holy Spirit to help us to feel the love that you have for us that we just talked about, to be assured that we are safe in relationship with you, God. Father, help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to do uh, a few things of response, and we do the same things every single week. First, we're going to have a time of silence, and I I just want you to, in this time of silence, reflect on uh, maybe why you have avoided the doctrine of the Trinity in the past, maybe why you've thought it was too out of your depth and you you can't just go for it. It's too rich and too deep. But more than that, I want you to reflect on that truth, that if God is not codependent, if God is not needy, what does that mean for how you approach him? If God is always wanting to give to you, then what is keeping you back from going in and receiving? What lie? What sin still has you by the arms keeping you from going to God to receive while it takes from you? Reflect on that. And then we're also going to give also ourselves. We want to give because we have a God who is generous in love and in relationship. And so we, being made in the image of God, and then even more importantly, remade in the image of his son, want to be generous as well in order to praise him, and in order to love our neighbors. And then finally, we're going to take communion. We're going to remember that the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, where Jesus was taken out, where he was removed from the Father, where he was forsaken from the Father, that he went that far to save us, and that his blood and his body given for us is the security of our salvation. We have hope this week. We even have grace for entering into these type of deep doctrines because it's not about how well we get it. It's about grace. It's about Jesus so we can explore these things and even kind of almost grope around in the dark, not knowing really where we're going, because we have grace and we, we let the word lead us. But we're going to take communion and we're going to remember that this is our salvation and it is wonderful. Let's do that now.